Hey everyone, welcome to Wine Wednesday and welcome to Viva Porvino, a podcast about wine. So I've been doing a lot of research and I am getting more and more excited about this. I want to express my pure gratitude to anyone and everyone who's still listening. Um, I know the last couple episodes that we've had have been a little long, packed full of information, of course, and I don't want to sell you short tonight either. So we're going to jump into a few things, but I want to share a few things from my week. Um, Like I've expressed before, I'm a sommelier at a nice little bar in uh, Michigan. called the wine grotto and we're fun we're new um just opened in september of 2023 and i started later in the experience so i didn't get into house until november 4th and i'm starting to see what little gem i work at and I also am seeing the excitement from people and I get to super geek out with people about wine and I have some friends that come to see me, um, some people who I've known a long time and are really into wine and they are willing to take an adventure with me. So I want to shout out to those who have stopped by and seen me um, and those who happen to come into the Michigan area we're Metro Detroit um, go Lions and I would love to give you the experience of a lifetime so um, hotel is st. John's Resort um, and we're in the basement um, we're a little gem that provides a really classy, cool experience. Really couchy and loungy um, with some really cool wines. So that being said, I was talking to some people about wine and of course, because that's naturally what I do every day. And people were asking, you know, how is it that wine is so connected to the church, how is it that wine is made, and I realized that maybe there's a little bit deeper we can go today. We've covered a lot on like the basic characteristics of wine and you know how to taste wine and things like that, but to know anything you kind of got to know a little bit of historical background. Um, We're going to go over some history today. We're also going to really dive deep into viticulture, really how wine is made. Now this is for the excitement of those who like farming. (laughs) Some of this is going to be a little boring for others, to be honest, but I think if you're into wine, it's kind of an exciting process. We're going to talk about climate today. We're going to talk about the effects of climate and where grapes grow naturally and why. 
We're gonna talk about top topography. I hate that word. I'm not very good at that word. Um, and soil types. We're gonna kind of jump into climate cause and effect and really kind of talk about harvesting and how that process goes on, you know, hand harvest versus mechanical. Um, are we doing bin sizes as small or large? Um, timing of the harvest and what that can mean. Um, and we'll go through a few more things about vintage and terroir which is some of the things that we've already kind of covered i'll just kind of touch on those a little bit then i think we'll get into the vinification of wine and how the fermentation process works um are we crushing are we leaving the seeds and stems and the skins all on um, are, what vessel are we using for fermentation process? Uh, talk a little bit about malolactic fermentation. A lot of times you see that in a Chardonnay. Um, and then we'll really just kind of wrap up, I think, at that point. Because I don't, I don't want to go too far too fast. And I really think this is a lot of extensive, deep, you know, gritty grindy gotta know stuff so um let's just dive right in today into our viva por vino a podcast about wine uh class in session today so first of all i'm gonna start with the fact that i am using the sommelier book today I decided that if we're going to learn about the real nitty gritty stuff, why not learn it from the real nitty gritty book? Um, so I'm going to kind of breeze through some of this stuff that is part of the SOM certification, which is really cool because I'm literally giving you like the information that I've learned straight from the book, but we'll kind of elaborate and we'll talk a little bit about this today. So let's talk about history. And it's for the love of Burgundy. So wine originated in Burgundy, France. So France is the motherland of all food and beverage. There's mother sauces when it comes to the food world. If you have learned anything about cuisine, French cuisine is the most, I would think, awarded. I also think it's the most respected cuisine on the planet and it really is because of the origin um burgundy is off also often thought as one of the most difficult wine regions to understand because there's so much going on you know we talked about champagne being from champagne france a burgundy is only from burgundy a bordeaux is only from bordeaux then there's the loire valley then there's the rhone valley then you have Alsace. There's so many different little pockets in which, but they're scattered so far across the map in France. So what we have to understand is that most wines are 
really complex because of the land in which they are grown in. And we're going to kind of get to that when we get to the soils and things like that. But if we're talking about history, how far back does wine really go? And it dates. It dates all the way to, you know, BC days. But during the Middle Ages, much of the vineyard land in Burgundy was owned by the Catholic Church Benedictine and the Cistercian monasteries. So we're talking monks, guys. We're talking monks. So this is the end of the 11th century and we're identifying that there's parcels of land that produce distinct wine grapes. And eventually this became the area known as Burgundy, France. Um, and most of the Appalachian does produce some of the greatest wines known to man. So you've heard of red Burgundies. I'm sure you've heard of white Burgundies. Burgundies are a type of wine from Burgundy, France, and essentially are the oldest recorded grape of all time. Now, no, during the French Revolution, um, the Burgundy vineyards were taken away from the church, and the property was divided up into mini parcels. So, new little spots that everyone owned. So, it was imagine it was like the church owned all this acreage. And one day they said, it's not for us, it's for everyone. And now, everyone owns a little piece of it. A little slice of heaven, I guess. And with that, the coolest part about this is a word we're going to revisit multiple times, and that's terroir. The way in which the winemaker makes the wine. So I want you to think about this. We have this big, big, giant piece of property that was making the same grape or maybe a couple different grapes, right? And they can make some of the greatest wines. But now I own my, say, acre and a half, two acres. And I want to make my wine a little bit differently. So my wine is going to have sandy soil instead of rocky soil. And I'm going to make a more elevated, more elegant wine because I have a different soil complex. Okay? Now imagine if there's 500 people that do that. We're talking about taking the same, relatively the same grape one, two, or three different grapes, maybe. And developing our own wine, our own style of making that wine, maybe blending those grapes in a different way. I don't know, maybe you take and make a deal with the neighbor next door. Hey, you're making your grapes one way and I'm making my grapes the other way. 
why don't we combine and make a blend between the two of our spaces? Do you see what I'm saying and how crazy in depth and complex Burgundy can really be? Um, in 1804, the Emperor Napoleon was instituted a new system of inheritance. So requiring that estates be divided equally among male heirs. Named the Code of Inheritance. This system led the fragmentation of Burgundy's wineries. Because upon the death of the parent, the male child would inherit equal amounts of property. Oh my gosh. So we just took this big, big, big piece of property. We got it all in these many, many parcels. And now we have children. What if I have like five kids and four of them are boys? That means my parcel is now split into four. So each one of my kids gets 25%. Now they could go make their own different type of wine. They could hybrid and age and ferment and do a million different things with the wine. And then their sons after that and their sons after that. So over the past, what, two centuries, I guess we would be a little bit over that because we're in 2024 at this point. So 220 years. Burgundy has remained the exact same because you cannot parcel off any more. They have distinguished some laws, the AOP laws that stipulate those of like Cruz and Grand Cruz, and they have quality, style, price, reputation, different owners. There's a grading system, as will, will every single region have a grading system for the most part. Um, that being said, we're going to get into grading systems. We're going to get into each region individually. So we'll really dive into France and talk about each one of these regions when we do regions. But we really have to know the heart and soul of where winemaking comes from and where wines, you know, essentially started and evolved from. Um, so that being said, as we talk about the way in which wine is made, we have to talk about the elements first. So when we're talking about wine, there's two different, there's a lot of V's. Vino is my favorite. Um, but viticulture and viniculture is what we're going to really dive in deep with today. So that was our brief history lesson. As we move forward, we're going to talk about viticulture first. That is your location, the geography of on the map, your climate, your topography, your soil, um, and 
then we're going to get into viniculture. And the viniculture part is the what I like to call the fun part because this is essentially terroir. This is the way in which wine's made. So all wine's going to go through a crushing process, a juicing process, fermentation. But it really makes a difference on what that juice ends up in, what how long it's in, what type of vessel. There's so many cool things that we're going to talk about today. So let's dive into viticulture. And viticulture is the art and science of vine growing. Art and science. Okay, because this is farming, guys. This is, we grow a grape on a particular piece of land and why does it grow there and why is it the most ripe in that area like if, if you really think about it Michigan has cherries Georgia peaches um what else do we have uh, apples here in Michigan a lot of different fruits Idaho potatoes you know corn fields all over the Midwest I know that you understand you know basic farming most people do but when it comes to determining where grapevines are going to be it really comes down to some of the basic factors of you know location site selection what is the specific goal of the winemaker what do they want to do what do they want that grape to taste like so first thing you have to do if you're a winemaker, and let's step into the winemaker's shoes. Let's tonight, let's, let's think about it as if we're a winemaker, okay? Let's close our eyes and say, I want to make wine, and I am going to pick the perfect location for my wine. Well, what other factors go into play? Why are you picking that location? What makes sense? What kind of climate is there? So you gotta think about, you know, sections of the world that make sense. Now you have to look at regional laws and what areas allow you to grow the grapes. And then of course, beyond that, is there a region? Is there a subregion? Is there a law that says you can or cannot produce there? Can you distribute? If you can distribute, where can you distribute to? Are there is there exportation opportunities? Are you getting it to the consumer as fast as you possibly can? What's your now financial investment? You have to think about it as a winemaker. You're putting all your world, your life, your money, your energy, and every and trust into some grapes. You plant the grapes, you feed the grapes what they need, all the nutrition that they can handle. You harvest the grapes, you mash them, you make them into juice, you ferment that juice, you make wine. Then you sit on that wine and you let that wine age. Now that aging process doesn't have to be too long. It could be six months, it could be two years, it could be a little bit longer than that. But imagine you put all of everything you have 
and your bottle comes out it's good it's a good wine now you have cases beyond cases of this wine and what do you do with it you have to get it out to the people there's a big financial burden to to bear to get wine out but as a winemaker, typically it's the joy, the love, the passion, the know that you are crafting something absolutely fantastic and delicious that is going to change the way someone looks at something because everything comes back to the fact that wine invokes emotion, wine invokes memories, and wine typically brings about some joy. I don't know. It does for me. And I'm hoping if you're still here hanging out with me that it does for you as well. Now, I want you to start to think about the location in which we're going to have this winery. Okay? Because we're the winemakers tonight and we are finding the perfect place. So let's think about climate. And when I say this, we got to talk about the parallels. And I'm taking you back to like elementary school geography class, guys. And if you look at a world map, and I want you to just maybe pull it up if you're with me and you're near a computer or you have your phone um, and you're listening and you can pull something up, pull up a latitude zone map of the world. And you you can even put it in like wine growing zone but if you're looking at it with me you're seeing that from the 30th to the 50th parallel and I would even give it to like 37 to 42 is where Michigan is so between the 30 and the 50th parallel are where wine is grown the most both in the northern and the southern hemispheres okay so we're looking in North America we're looking Europe we're looking China then we get into South America like Argentina and South Africa and Australia and New Zealand we know, we know these regions they're wine regions well why are they wine regions because they are by climate control of what is natural and what we know by years of study and meteorology this is the best place to grow grapes so when we describe climate we can look at it kind of like small medium large okay so small is going to be those microclimates which is like the itty 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 bitty distinct pieces that we're talking about into the soil and what the vine has grown on and describing single row of that vine okay now mesoclimate mesoclimate is your medium that is the particular vineyard 
So the location in which we chose to actually plant the grapes. And we're talking about macro climate, we're looking at big picture. Okay, so let's break this down. Starting from large, we're looking at the best place to grow grapes for what we know and what we love. Well, I'm not gonna lie to you, I love Italian wine, but I am a United States girl through and through. So, I'm also a Michigander, and I love my Michigan wine. So tonight, I think my biggest comparison and the wine I'm gonna talk about tonight is Grand Traverse Riesling. And I do that for a few reasons. One, I absolutely love this wine. I'm a late harvest sucker, and they have a few different harvests that they do, and we're gonna talk about harvest, so I was gonna bring it up anyways. Um, but at all times, this wine is in my fridge. And I love this wine because they are very particular about how they harvest this grape and when they harvest and why they grow a Riesling in Michigan. Well, it's climate. It's where we are. We stay cold longer. We get colder earlier in the season. Uh, these, these grapes thrive in the, in the cold and we can give that to them. We also have lake effect. We have water all over the place. And where this Grand Traverse is, is in Traverse City, right off the water. Um, so there's a lot of different factors we're gonna talk about. So maritime and deserts and Mediterranean and temperature cooling. And that's gonna be a huge effect. So climate by definition is the patterns of weather, okay? So there's continental A climate that's characterized by a strong annual variation in temperature. So that's due to lack of water. There's either really hot summers or really cold winters. So there's lots of extremes there, right? And as I kind of mentioned earlier, maritime. Maritime is near a large body of water, like a sea or the ocean. Um, you have more milder temperatures and they fluctuate from year to year. So when it fluctuates day to day, that's affecting the grape that is grown that right now, during that harvest, like during 2024, right? So if we're talking about the temperature fluxing year over year, going super cold, super hot. We're talking about changing vintages. We're talking 1999, 2002, 2006, 2016. They're all different. We could even be talking about 2020, 2021, and 2022 all being different. Remember what we talked about I think it was in our first podcast, we talked about California and the effect of the wildfires. Think about how the weather changed over the last couple of years. If you're in Michigan with me, I know I 
I've seen it for the last few years. There's no snow on Christmas, but we have snow on Easter. It's almost like winter's delayed. But we got hit, hit pretty hard with some snow and ice the other day, and it seems like winter's sticking around right now, which for the grapes and them to thrive in the soils, they thrive off the nutrients being brought to them by the snow um, and the precipitation that's given to them. So there's nutrients being put into the ground all year long. Now on the other side of that, there's Mediterranean. So summers are hot and dry and there's immediate coastal areas. So you're getting that really hot temperature but you're getting the cold water currents so that almost mistiness off the water and there's a lot of storms so there's going to be rain and a lot of moisture in the air which seeps into the ground now on furthermore you have like the high desert so i have a wine at my work and it's from arizona it's a gsm blend Grenache Ceram Movedra, I believe it is. I, I want to say that's right, unless it's Magistral. No, it's a Movedra blend. And it is awesome. It's funky. It's really cool. It's definitely a different wine. So you have to kind of understand wine to really get the difference of why it is a unique wine. But it ultimately is because it's from Arizona, from the desert. So temperature, again, cool, moderate, warm, and hot all play a factor in how wine works. So going back to my Grand Traverse Riesling, the colder they are, the, the more sweet they tend to be. The warmer they are, the more acidic and the more full-bodied and juicy and jammy they are. So some things to think about when you're talking about effects of climate. You have sunshine hours, you have freeze and frost, wind storms, hail, all that can be factors in damage vines which I mean naturally in farming is is the way that it goes um, you can get cool and warm when you're around bodies of water whether that be rivers lakes or oceans it just kind of depends on what kind of water you're getting um, and where it's coming from so I do want to talk about this just for a second because a lot of the times we hear wine being grown in valleys and on mountains. Well, why is that? Um, mountains tend to get effect from both sides and it a lot of what it's considered is called rain shadow. So if you think about a mountain and say there's water on one side just like say Napa Valley okay there's water on one side it's really green and grassy and it rains a lot so there's a lot of precipitation there 
but on the other side of that mountain that doesn't get the lake effect has a lot of dry desert soil and sand and gets a lot of sun. So the rain shadow effect is where that precipitation and those nutrients are getting into the enriched soils for the other side of the mountain. And growing in valleys provides the opportunity for that enriched sun, the enriched soils, not getting the crazy maritime and, and lake and water effect, so it's not so damaging to the grapes. And it provides a great way for us to grow wine. Now we have to talk about, you know, elevation. The steeper the hillside, the more opportunity for frost, for that snow that's at the tippy top of that mountain to melt down um, and to be a little bit cool. Um, valleys tend to get a lot less air and you, you need nutrients and you need air to have the plant be able to breathe. And really, it ultimately comes down to its proximity to water. And how is that vine getting water? Whether we're watering it or it's getting it directly from Mother Nature. Some soil types that most wine is grown from are going to be granite, limestone, uh, merrill, clay, sand, silt, gravel. And I want you to remember that we talked about the type of grape that we're growing too. Remember Vitis vinifera? They're tiny, tiny little grapes. And there's upwards of 10,000 varietals. Very large amount of those in Italy. Now, when we talk about these grapes, they probably have some soils that they match really well with and some climates that they match really well with. Like we said, Riesling goes really well in cold climates. Syrah goes really, really well. Syrah or Shiraz, same grape, different name, goes really, really well in um, those, low, those southern hemisphere climates. So what is its climate compatibility and its soil compatibility? And that's where we do research on each individual grape, which as we progress forward in this podcast together, I feel like we'll get there. And I really want to focus on like the regions first so that we then can learn about what grapes are grown in each region. And then we can kind of break down the grapes. Um, so we'll learn about different types of grapes as we move forward. So let's talk about climate cause and effect. In cooler climates, grapes tend to ripen a little bit slower. 
they produce less sugar, they remain a lot higher in acidity, they have a less alcohol potential, and their flavors tend to be a little bit more tart and lean, less ripe and juicy. Where on the other side of that in the warm climate, grapes tend to fully ripen. So there's more sugar produced, acid is lower, therefore yielding higher alcohol potential. And the flavors are more that ripe, luscious juiciness. So knowing all this, let's step back into our winemaker's shoes and say, okay, we found the area in which we want to grow our grapes. We found the perfect location. Now we have to think about the property. So getting into that like mezzo climate, we really need to see what the property is like and what's in the vineyard. So as we're setting up our vineyard, let's think about how we're gonna, you know, lay out our vines. So really it's vineyard architecture. It's really making sure that we have vine spacing, we're training the vines properly, we know our yield. Um, so with spacing, you wanna make sure that the grape vines are spaced out properly so that they can grow properly. And that starts from the root. And if you know a plant, I mean, the roots grow down and out. So they have to have enough room to grow themselves and not intertwine too far into another one. Now, also we wanna train the vines. We wanna train them to grow kind of upwards instead of all scattered all over the place. So we have to have vessels to be able to do that. So a lot of the times you'll see long sticks, you'll see almost it looking like a tree. Um, but that all encompasses how we figure out our yield and how much is being produced per vine. So is it a ton per vine? Um, measured sometimes in a hectoliter um, or pounds or kilos per vine. You know, how much yield are you really getting? You know, what it, what amount of cluster of grapes do you need to produce a bottle, really? Um, and know that there's different times to harvest. So uh, green harvest is a fun fact, means you're dropping or cutting the grapes off the vine before the harvest to focus on the vine energy um, and have higher quality bunches. So you'll have fewer bunches, but you're having really, really super high quality. Um, where on the other side of that, you have something like a late harvest. This goes back to my Traverse City Riesling. Um, the late harvest is going to be the latest the grapes can be harvested off the vine. So that tends to yield longer, sweeter, um, and a lot of the times a Riesling is a later harvest. So um, green harvests tend to be those really, really high quality reds that we know and love, like a big cab or a Zinfandel. Now in that, we also have to know vineyard management, making sure that we know what kind of bugs and irrigation and pesticides that we need and in particular making sure that we're fertilizing properly putting antifungal 
but things that are not going to damage the flavor of the wine. So making sure that we're really taking care of these grapevines the proper way and keeping it as natural as possible. Now, that also being said, time of picking, like we said, harvest, we were talking about, you know, the early harvest, that green harvest versus that late harvest. Your timing is really because you need to make sure that the grape has specific elements to get you ready to be able to ferment those grapes. So you're looking for maturity, which is kind of the ripeness of the grape and um, the density of it. You want to see the sugar ripeness. Does it have the good sugars that you need to make it the wine that you want it to become? Um, then you have to kind of look at the tannin ripeness and making sure that the skins are where you want them to be to get the color that you want them to be in the flavor profile. Now, harvesting can come in a couple of different ways. You have hand harvesting or mechanical harvesting. Now, obviously, hand harvesting is a little bit slower and way more labor intensive. Um, this is where you're going to have people go in and hand trim and hand cut these grapes off these vines. And I think that just is a passion and a love, quite honestly. I really think hand harvesting uh, yields for something much greater in the process of the making the wine. Um, on the other side, you have mechanical harvesting, which I've shared some videos on my social media before, so I'm sure you can definitely check out my Instagram or my Facebook, of these machines and these people that are sitting off the back of the, these machines harvesting these grapes and how quick and cool and calm like this machine is that just pops off the vine, pops all the grapes into this big bucket. It is the coolest thing to watch, I promise you that. Now, that also kind of yields to production size, right? So you're looking at, are we hand harvesting into a small bin or a large bin? Are we mechanical harvesting into a small or a large? Naturally, I, I think it normally goes a hand, hand harvesting, they tend to be small batch. They tend to be reserves. They tend to be single vineyard. They tend to be, you know, lots where they're coming from one single set of vines. Where mechanical harvesting tends to be in larger harvesting bins um, because it's probably mass produced. And you're making way more than the, the small, you know, mom and pop who are just hand harvesting. And that being said, with a hand harvest, I feel like there's an opportunity for terroir to really come into play. It's every bit of the influence from the tips of these people's fingers into the grape. So today was cool on the viticulture part and we understand that winemakers have ways of making it but really we're just determining where by viticulture and now that we've 
figured this out as our winemaker selves today. I want you to open your mind up to the opportunity of now being a winemaker and what vinification really means at this point. So vinification is the art of winemaking. And it's absolutely an art and a craft. And there are some people who have made a perfection of their ideas in a bottle. So in vinification, this is the fermentation process, the winemaking process, what goes into each, how long they're aged for, is there malolactic fermentation, things like that. So I'm honestly going to just kind of run through this really quickly to give you the knowledge and the background about the art of winemaking. But I thought that viticulture would have been a little bit more important because it comes down to where and why and the process of growing the grape, which is ultimately the beginning. So now that we have grapes grown, we have our space, our vines are lined up, we are harvesting, we need to kind of really make our way through the vinification process. So in pre-fermentation, we're sorting, we're destemming, we're crushing, and we're making these grapes as they are. Now you can keep the stems on. Um, you could just throw it all into a vessel of some sort, which we'll get to vessels in a second. Um, but it is really important in the process to make those decisions early and really can stay consistent with that as a winemaker. So when they're sorted, it's removing leaves and branches and damaged fruit and other unwanted items, any bugs of, of any sort um, that could affect that cluster. Now, like I said, destemming is something that you can do. Um, it does, mind you, make it forces you to bear the fruit from the cluster. Um, so sometimes um, it doesn't necessarily yield to different to better flavors. I have always learned that stemming can leave a different style and a different finish to your wine. Um, so that can definitely be something that you as your as your winemaker self decide that you want to do but again do it at the beginning and keep it consistent crushing often crushing and destemming are produced um as a single mechanism stage so you're going to destem and then you're going to crush there's two steps in that process um crushing gets all the juices out now of course in the fermentation process if you want to leave the skins on um you can do that to increase the color, increase the tannin, things like that. Now, fermentation, by definition, is a chemical reaction where sugar from a ripe grape juice plus yeast, either ambient in the air or inclinated into a winemaker's yield, so it's either produced or not, or, or naturally produced, 
alcohol and carbon dioxide, so CO2, as well as flavors, aroma, and heat are all connected together. So take your, your sugar, your yeast, and then it yields to alcohol, CO2, flavors, other aromas, and heat. So you just need a little bit of sugar and a little bit of yeast. Now that being said, the way white wine, rosé, and red wine are made are a little bit different. So we have a harvest. And if you want to make a little chart of this, I would put white wine at the top, then rosé, then red wine. And put harvest underneath of that. For white wine, we can harvest red or white wine grapes. Rosé is red wine grapes. And red wine is obviously red grapes. Next step, we're going to either destem or whole bunch. So we're going to decide on that. And in the same process, but for red wine, we're either going to crush them, the, crush the grapes, or we're going to, with skins and seeds, we're going to macerate. So you can do a couple different things with the red where again this is where terroir comes in you make these decisions at the very beginning then on the white and the rosé we're going to crush those red wine is going to start its fermentation immediately now we're going to get to the white and the rosé that's where we're going to press the juice from the skins with white grapes you want to essentially peel the grapes so that you keep it as white as possible the less skin contact the lighter the color um, with rosé obviously limited skin so that you get that pinkish color and then you're gonna press the juices from the skins on the red wine at this point after fermentation White wine and rosé are going to ferment. And while they're doing that, red wine is going to age. Now, red wine goes through a fermentation process much quicker because we've already crushed and skinned and macerated because the skins are going to stay on. Um, so aging, you can do no aging or you can do barrel aging. Um, it would depend on what kind of vessel you're using for barrel aging and fermentation agings. Um, so we're going to jump to that in just a second, but know that there's a couple different opportunities for reds and for whites. So with white wine, aging comes in uh, contact with barrels, typically um, stainless steel, concrete, or wood, right? Those are the three different types of materials for vessels. So on white wine, Sometimes people say it's been on lees and lees, L-E-E-S. Well, lees is essentially leaving the grapes on in the fermentation process after fermentation is complete. So it'll stay on those stems and sticks and the bunch will stay together even after fermentation. And that'll also depend on flavor profile. So Lee's provides a separate flavor profile. 
Now, aging for rosé tends to be in barrels. And again, we talked about rosé being a lot of Grenache and Pinot Noir. Red wine ages in either the barrels, the stainless, or the concrete. Um, it also depends on it at this point if it gets filtered or not. So sometimes people don't filter their wine and they'll leave the sediment inside. Um, I think in my first episode I mentioned Tom Chalani's got a lot of unfiltered wines. This is where he stands out in his uniqueness. He's got really good, big, heavy wines from Napa Valley. And he decides to leave them unfiltered, which is really cool because then you get some of that sediment and it makes the wine a little bit more chewy. At this point, we're going to uh, find it, filter it, bottle it, and all three of them will be bottled. The process takes can take a couple of years depending on your aging process. So knowing what you want to do from the very beginning as a winemaker and setting that as your standard to create that wine it can take a couple of years to really get that product. Now, in the aging process, like we talked about, fermentation can happen in vessels in wood, stainless steel, or concrete. Um, typically, they are shaped, you know, egg style or barrel style. Um, now, that being said, in a barrel, we do aging for maturation. Um, barrel aging creates an opportunity for evaporation, um, a little bit of oxidation, so the wine changes a little bit of color. You'll see darker yellows and golds with the whites, and you'll see a little bit actually lighter colors and reds. It kind of goes to that more caramely color, um, and that's kind of a distinction of whether or not it's been aged in a barrel. Um, the aging in oak tends to soften the wines, makes it a lot more elegant and elevated where it also provides some extra flavoring. Vanillas, oak, toastiness, um, spices like cinnamon and clove and allspice. Sometimes you'll get a little bit, little bit of coconut as well. So things to consider when you're talking about barrel aging. Um, is it new oak? Is it old oak? Um, new oak tends to really provide a pungent flavor where old oak the more you age in it the less of that oak you're going to get um but it does leave still for that like woody flavor um and still gives it some of that spice but you also have to take on the financial application like we said we're putting in a lot of money into this winery that we're building and as winemakers we're not getting very much money back right away it's a long-term investment so that being said if we have new oak barrels and we're using new oak all the time i'm sure it's going to get expensive right um so if you want to save a little bit you can do oak chips and planks um you could also just do smaller barrels um smaller amounts or larger barrels and get more yield more bang for your buck um so Older and used oak tends to be the less expensive side of things, um, but definitely yields for different flavoring um, from the new oak. So barrels, again, large or small. Um, when they're smaller, that, that liquid is touching 
more of the barrel, so you're going to get a heightened flavor there, where if it's a larger barrel, there's more liquid, so less opportunity for all the liquid to touch the actual barrel. So types of oak, American oak, French oak, and other types, um, there's Hungarian, there's North Croatian, which is Slovenian. Um, otherwise, you're pretty much in American oak. That's super bold, vanilla, baking spices, dill and coconut, where the French oak tends to be more of the vanilla, toasty spices. Um, the toast would also have to do with the winemaker's specificity on how much extra they might put into the wine. So they may throw some other grapes in there with some extracted wood tannin and put that into the barrel. Now important factors also in the fermentation process is like we talked about lees on contact so leaving white or sparkling um, with the yeast that produces the fermentation. So you leave it on a little bit longer. When the cells die, they release components of the wine and gives an additional richness, creaminess, texture. Tends to be that buttery, popcorny flavor. Same with the malolactic fermentation. So lees tends to leave the richness and the creaminess where malolactic fermentation brings about a lot of that buttery and popcorn flavor. Malolactic meaning mallow. Um, it's a softer tasting lactic acid. Um, malolactic fermentation typically happens in like Chardonnays um, to give it really that big pungency smells. Um, on Lees, know that there is some aromas that come with Lees. Bread, dough, yeast, toastiness, subtle white flavors, nuttiness, pine nuts, shells, um, almonds, things like that. So malolactic fermentation again gives it that mallow, that buttery, that popcorny, and that lees is going to leave it with that, um, that bread, that yeast, that toast, and that nuttiness, but rich and creamy. Now some adjustments may need to be made in the unfermented juices and things like that, but that's all on the winemaker when we decide. Um, and typically there's a couple test bottles that they run at the very beginning to make sure that it is what they really want it to be. Um, then we get into the identification of our brand and preparing for bottling. Um, so we're going to make sure that we have the stability that we need. We have a filtration system. We know which way we're packaging, um, how we're doing our closures. Are we doing corks? Is there self-in enclosures? Are we glass topping? What kind of ways are we corking this? Um, we're putting capsules on it. We're labeling. We're ready to go. Um, so all of those decisions have to get made at the very, very, very beginning because once you start, you want to keep that consistent. You don't want to have to change it because once these people know your label, um, the, the consumer will continue to go back to your particular label. And when we start talking about shopping and talk about labels and things like that and what we're looking for at the grocery store, 
a label is going to be a huge selling point for you. So today I want you to become that master winemaker in your head. And I want you to really think about all the things we talk about when it came to a little bit of history and where we started. Then today we found we found our way. We found our way to the perfect place to have a winery. And now we're making all the right decisions for ourselves to make the best wine there is. And there's a lot that goes into this. And I thought it'd be really cool to kind of step in the winemaker's shoes today and really understand what they go through, what kind of thought process gets the ball rolling, and give you kind of some words, I mean, straight out of the courtmaster of some lady's book. Um, we, we went through a lot today, um, another hour session of learning about wine which I really do appreciate everyone who stuck around with me today. That being said, next week we'll be shopping for wine. We're going to talk about going to the grocery store, what that looks like for you, what shelf you're going to go on. We're going to talk about wine clubs, what wine clubs are out there, what they do, and what kind of benefits you can get from wine clubs, um, and how to just keep a good stash of wine in your house and... Maybe I'll talk about what mine looks like. So that being said, I want to thank each and every one of you for listening tonight. Um, joining me on your Wine Wednesday. I hope you enjoyed your glass of wine while we talked about wine, of course. Um, shout out to Podcastle. Yet again, the easiest platform to use for podcasting and really publishing everything. Um, I did publish last week for the first time. I put out three episodes and it didn't take me more than like 15-20 minutes to do so. So if you're in the podcasting world and you're looking for a really cool platform or if you're wanting to start a podcast, Podcastle is where it's at. Um, again, today's resource was the Courtmaster Sommelier's introduction book. Um, I also plenty of knowledge from myself from my years of experience so I invite you again to join us every Wednesday and learn a little bit of something extra about wine thanks so much for joining us at Viva Porvino a podcast about wine around here we live for wine cheers <laughs>